Welcome to Canthropod. This is episode 12, Wicked Problems in the World of Debt Advice, by Ryan Davey and Carl Packman. There was um, a particular conversation that I'd had with someone, and they rather despairingly said, what do you tell someone um, when they have already started to cut back and make significant uh, changes on on their consumption mm. to the point where you know they're not eating, they're not heating their home properly. What what do you tell someone if they if they are still in a negative budget? What do you tell someone who um, is fight you know is, is spending every last penny on um, keeping the the the, de- the creditors at bay? And you know, rob, you know mm. metaphorically speaking, of course, robbing from Peter to pay Paul, so mm. not being able to provide a, a warm meal at night, but rather that's going on your provident payments or your paid loan payments. Mm. If if someone's in that situation and that's not rare anymore, unfortunately, what do you what what is the best a financial advisor mm. or a debt advisor can do? Mm-hmm. And I found that despair I, I find it regularly among um, the advice sector you know and there's some very serious conversations that ought to go on uh, that ought to be undertaken to discuss not just the existence of or the categorization of priority versus non-priority debts which is a, a you know a mechanism that a person might take to um, pay the one pay the the, the, the creditor for whom it's most important it's normally your rent you know or it is normally um, something that involves your your home rather than a, a, a sort of credit card or anything like that mm-hmm. but more so you know to the point where how do we start to negotiate on behalf of a debtor or you know a client mm-hmm. who who really can't afford to pay some of those existing commitments back mm-hmm. And they're not due any time a debt cancellation from the from the creditor themselves. At what point do we start to advocate? Don't pay it. You know, don't yeah. don't just just uh, do all you can, and we'll assist you, and we'll help you do all you can to not pay this debt back. In a world where credit has become an essential means of getting by, how can debt advice organisations help those who are struggling to repay? I'm Ryan Davey and I'm a researcher in the Anthropology Department at the London School of Economics. I've done research about household debt in the UK among people living on low incomes based on a year's fieldwork on a housing estate in the south of England. At the moment I'm researching the debt advice sector. And I'm Carl Packman, I'm a research and good practice manager at Toynbee Hall, an anti-poverty charity in the east end of London. And Carl, could you tell us briefly about what debt advice is? That advice, put simply, is a service that is provided by a variety of organisations to furnish an individual with guidance about their debts. It can typically be a way also to identify priority and non-priority debts. So in addition to guidance, advice can offer a coping strategy for those people in serious debt or who are over-indebted, meaning that their outgoings are more than their incoming. In this context, a debt advisor can also negotiate on behalf of an indebted person to reduce the burden of debt.
So both of us are involved in research um, around indebtedness and debt advice and both of us have come across particular sticking points where debt advice seems to be working in ways um, that are contradictory to the economic realities of the situations their clients face. And this is what we want to talk about in this podcast, the wicked problems facing debt advice in today's world. When we talk about the wicked problems facing debt advice today, we're referring to the ways in which debt advisors themselves are put in impossible situations where there is no clear way out. So it's not our aim to point the finger or to suggest there are any easy solutions. We're highlighting these wicked problems in order to start to understand them in all their complexity and to start a conversation with people in the debt advice world and beyond about how they might be addressed. Our aim in doing all this is to explore the impossible conundrums that debt advisors face, specifically as a result of the fact that credit today is an essential means of subsistence and even survival for millions of people. We're interested in the implications of this fact for two of the guiding principles of debt advice. Firstly, the idea that people who have debt problems should try to stop using credit altogether and secondly, and perhaps more controversially, the general belief that people should always pay their debts. For anyone who's listening who studies anthropology, I hope this podcast might be of interest to you as an attempt to explore the normative implications of anthropological research for a particular field of social practice, in this case, debt advice. Similar to how the Camthropod podcast as a platform gives anthropological knowledge access to a broader public, this episode of the podcast seeks a bridge between research findings and their practical implications. And for any debt advisors listening, we would love to hear what you think about all this. Maybe your experience is different from ours, or maybe there are considerations we've overlooked. Whether it's positive or critical, please do get in touch. Our contact details are on the podcast webpage. Debt advice agencies in Britain generally require people who come to them for help to relinquish all of their credit facilities. This means agreeing not to take out further credit and also deactivating any credit cards or overdrafts. It's a sensible way of helping people clear all their debts. However, in the research I've conducted with debt advice clients, a number of them are concerned about having to abstain from credit entirely. One of the people I interviewed was a retired man called Stephen, who had worked all his life in construction and driving and was now a carer for his disabled wife. He lived on his state pension and a carer's allowance totalling around £450 per month. He owed over £10,000 in various loans and credit cards and was receiving letters threatening legal action. I met him after he sought help from an advice agency in order to avoid being taken to court. He was unconvinced about why he should have to give up an emergency credit card. He said, we've got this Barclay card for emergencies. When the advisor came, he said we had to get rid of that as well, because it counts as a debt. But we've got no money, and it's the only fallback we've got. Very often, debt advisors see their role as supporting people to wean themselves off credit, as if credit were a kind of bad habit, or even an addiction. Current models of debt advice make it difficult for advisors to acknowledge Stephen's claim that his credit card was a vital resource, rather than an added extra. But there is a lot to be learned from debtors themselves about the value that lenders can have. As you'd expect, many people I met during my research spoke of their debts in terms of being trapped or shackled and seeing no way out. One man I met, who had been unemployed for about a year, told me, whatever jobs there are aren't enough to provide for a family. Sometimes you need to take out loans. I've done it a few times, but you can't ever pay it back. I just feel like there's no way out of it. However, many people who are struggling to make ends meet 
were glad their lenders had given them credit because it helped them to get through a period when money was very tight. One woman called Kerry had taken out a doorstep loan so that her family of five could move from a two-bedroom flat to a three-bed house. She said of her doorstep loans agent, My agent has always been there for me. He said to me, If you ever need any help with anything, just let me know. He's been there for years, and we are having some financial difficulties at the moment. He said, You've always been good. You've always been honest. You've never pretended that you're not in. I hate having to rely on loans, but we don't have much money at the moment, and without the loans company, we wouldn't have been able to afford lots of things. We're used to payday lenders and doorstep lenders being cast as the villains in the world of credit. But, like Kerry, many people living on low incomes do not completely vilify high-cost lenders such as these, but have a more ambivalent relation to them. In fact, sometimes being glad that they're there. Their ambivalence reflects the double-edged nature of high-cost credit. While the interest and fees lenders charge can be extortionate, these lenders are often the only ones offering any kind of cash flow to those people struggling to get to the next payday. One example of a person I spoke to during some fieldwork looking at the third party check cashing industry, or check cashers, told me that after he gets paid on a Friday evening in check, he takes that check to his chosen check casher, retrieves the cash value of the check straight away, albeit at a premium, as most check cashers will charge somewhere between 3 and 6% for every check cashed, and then subsequently takes that money and deposits it with his local bank branch. Why, you might ask, does he pay the premium for something he could do for free? The reason is that the man has no savings buffer and cannot wait the three to five days it takes for a cheque to clear in his main bank. Therefore, for him, the premium paid for cashing a cheque is worth it because this way he has money to spend over the weekend, which he is able to do with his bank card. In the world of debt advice, the fact that credit is a necessity for many people is reflected in a dark sense of humour you often find among debt advisors. The running jokes at the advice centre where I did fieldwork were that it would take clients decades or even centuries to clear their debts at the rate of payment you'd arranged for them. Or that you could put a client on a repayment plan, but the chances were they would not be able to stick to it. We'll see them again in a year or two, laughed one advisor after closing a case. Another advisor often said, you have to laugh in this job or else you'd cry. The advisor's sense of humour betrays their awareness that despite all of their efforts, in many cases clients simply cannot stick to the repayment plans they've set up and consequently face a lifetime of debt problems. You often hear that repayment plans fall through because the clients lack the right financial skills or self-discipline to stick to them. But given how widespread this problem is, isn't it possible that it's a system that needs fixing rather than the people within it? If you could tell me a bit about your role at Toynbee and about Toynbee as an organisation and yeah. advice within it. Yeah, of course. So um, Toynbee Hall is a, an anti-poverty charity based in the East End of London. Okay. It was formed in 1884, so it's quite an old organisation. Okay. <laughs> uh, it, uh, its frontline services include debt advice, financial advice more broadly, um, finance pro financial programs. Uh, they have money mentors, for example, which is a program of work that equips um, the community, the the local community, with the the, the financial know how to help their peers uh, manage their money better, so budget better, and, and, and issues like that. 
Uh, my role, I, I sit within uh, what's called the National Services Team and I'm the Research Manager. So I look at, uh, my, my sort of specialism in, is looking at non-traditional financial behaviours, okay. uh, you know, particularly of, of low-income people. And uh, what I try to do is burst the myth that uh, low-income people have bad financial behaviours and that's why they are on a low income. Okay. I, I tend to try and test and find um, the hidden rationalities of low-income financial behaviours. What I've, I find really interesting about the work that you've done is that it's it's trying to cultivate a less antagonistic relationship between advisors and clients in terms of or p- perhaps a less paternalistic relationship mm. where it's not necessarily assumed from the outset that we, the advisors, know best. Mm and you, the client, need to learn and amend your ways, it seems to be more a case of, okay, let's stop for a second and think about the wisdom that that person has accumulated mm. through their experience of having to deal with this day in and day out. Mm. Could you just um, elaborate on this interesting distinction that you make between traditional forms of financial capability and non-traditional forms of financial capability? So how you might define a traditional form of financial capability is by having a savings buffer mm-hmm. and a you know a form of savings that might be in a product say for example an ISA mm-hmm. or um, the reliance on friends and family as, as a savings buffer and, and those forms of financial capability but also um, it could be everyday um, budgeting um, buying with you know online deals for example um, non-traditional forms of financial capability could be for example uh, the person who um, is needing to have money for over the weekend for essentials who may well be um, using a, a check casher and then putting the money in his bank account so he doesn't have to wait the clearing time mm-hmm. that person is a capable person who is mm-hmm. rationally thinking through what the implications are of um, doing normal finances day to day? Are you getting paid in your account and paying out on your bank in your bank account? And mm-hmm. thinking that's not going to necessarily work for me. Mm-hmm. It's a really interesting distinction, I think, for what we're trying to explore here. And if I'm understanding rightly, then what's non-traditional about, say, taking out or going to a check casher on the Friday rather than waiting five days? Uh, for the cheque to clear in your bank is that it's not necessarily something that a debt advice organisation would ordinarily advise that you do because there would be a concern there that you're making yourself more indebted and incurring more interest than you would have been doing. Mm. Um, But what seems to be interesting about these kind of non-mainstream, non-traditional forms of financial capability is that they are quite quite appropriate in some ways Mm. to a situation where um, money is extremely tight Mm. and there's a kind of time factor built in such that actually that five days difference having the money today rather than next Tuesday Mm. can make all the difference and I wouldn't necessarily you know myself advocate on on doing that I wouldn't necessarily tell someone to pay a premium on a on a check that they've been paid with because Mm. um I always err on the side of what's a free service, um, but with with a with a situation like that, 
But as opposed to feeling the need to advocate on it, advocate on behalf of it, I at least understand it. It's often assumed that there are good and bad financial behaviours. And though this kind of financial management wouldn't work for everyone, indeed not everyone would have to worry about having access to a small amount of money for the weekend, it does work for some people, despite how non-traditional it may seem at face value. This assumption of good and bad behaviour has cultivated the feeling that low-income households are less well-off because of poor financial management. But very often, this couldn't be further from the truth. What proves difficult is the financial context they find themselves in. Recently, I spoke to a person working in financial education, and they told me that the traditional forms of debt advice really aren't cutting it for people's actual lives, particularly in the context of welfare reform, universal credit, and the erosion of the so-called safety net. I was told, we can't tell them to cut down on treats because there are no treats. We can't tell them to cut down on food because they've already done that. Some people we see are only eating every other day. We often end up feeding them ourselves. And we can't tell them to cut down on fuel because that was the first thing that they cut down on. It's not a question any longer of heat or eat because they aren't doing either. We know that household debt is increasing too. For many people, this is because borrowing is the only option for those with too much month at the end of their money. According to the Office for Budget Responsibility, the OBR, households are expected to spend 58 billion more than they earn this year, rising to 68 billion by the end of the decade. Personal borrowing from credit cards and other loans is subsequently expected to rise, pushing up the unsecured debt to income ratio to 46% by 2020, from 39% in 2016. It may be assumed that this is only going to affect a small number of people, but the way things are going in the labour market, that isn't absolutely certain. Sean Williams, the head of national services at Toynbee Hall, put it in a recent paper, mainstream life is becoming increasingly unusual. The employment market is shifting away from the kind of permanence we know as normal towards shorter term and ever changing conditions. Zero hour contracts are increasingly being used for part time employment and thus mainly affect people who either need to work part time for educational or caring reasons or who are blending different forms of income. The data also shows that self-employment is likely to be both an alternative to long-term unemployment among all income ranges and a top-up option for those who are past the formal retirement age. Consequently, there will be a growing population who do not have a single job with a monthly salary and who increasingly rely on irregular and unpredictable work as their main source of income. This quote that you've just given from your colleague, uh, Sean Williams, echoes a lot of the insights of anthropological research into contemporary capitalism, um, in particular, the finding that insecure incomes are now the norm. Since the middle of the 20th century, industrial production shifted from factories producing the same product over and over again on a production line with what's called the Fordist model, 
to a more flexible model whereby what a company produced and how and why it would go about producing it was expected to be able to change rapidly. Another shift that went alongside this was what people call financialization, that is, a massive increase in financial trading, especially with the trading of securities, and the rollout of financial products like loans and mortgages on a massive scale. These are fundamental changes in how we as humans produce and obtain the stuff we need and want, and they have far-reaching reverberations around the world. One of the main reverberations in the UK is that many people's jobs and livelihoods are more precarious. As Carl said, more and more people are doing short-term contracts and casual work rather than permanent employment, as well as frequently alternating between employment and unemployment. Wages have become less reliable as a means of getting by. Alongside these changes, since the end of the 1970s, a lot of the safety net that was once provided by the welfare state has been removed. For instance, welfare benefits have been cut in the last five years, and social housing has dwindled while private renting has grown, with few protections for tenants. For many people in the UK, access to vital needs is now provided by personal debt, rather than by social security provisions. All these aspects of contemporary capitalism provide an important political and economic context for understanding why people borrow. Having an insecure income is the norm in today's world, not the exception. Because of this, the situation in which more and more people borrow is one of compromise and necessity, rather than one of free choice. Growing irregularity and unpredictability for low-income households will almost certainly bolster those predictions of the OBR that household borrowing and over-indebtedness is likely to rise very steeply. This poses major challenges for mainstream debt advice. In a financial environment where individuals have cut back on everything they could possibly cut back on, within the reality that borrowing household debt are rising, what further realistic solutions can the advice sector pursue? Non-traditional forms of financial management demonstrate the resilience of households for whom money is typically short, but the external financial reality and its unpredictability is pushing such management to the very limits. As such, a frank discussion will need to take place within all corners of the debt advice sector to prepare for this. This includes conversations about staple issues like bankruptcy and legal action, but also issues that have been previously seen as perhaps a little too radical. Debt, non-repayment and even cancellation. So Carl, this point that you've raised about whether debt cancellation and debt non-payment could ever become possible options in debt advice is really interesting. We usually assume that if a debt is legally valid, then it's also morally binding, in the sense that it would be wrong not to pay it back in full. But are there any exceptions to this? Are there any grounds on which debt should ever be cancelled? And can it ever be legitimate, morally speaking, for someone to refuse to pay a debt? In thinking about debt cancellation and debt non-payment, it's worth noting that both things are happening all the time already. In terms of debt cancellation, we have forms of insolvency such as bankruptcy and debt relief orders that effectively wipe the slate clean. On top of this, lenders routinely give up collecting on what they call non-performing accounts, i.e. debts where the customer isn't coughing up, or debts owed by what are called vulnerable customers. So it's not the principle of debt cancellation that's at stake here. 
but rather society's view about what the valid grounds are on which debt cancellation might legitimately take place. If you take our insolvency system, how good is it as a mechanism for debt cancellation? Some people have said that it's ineffective because it is based on an outdated assumption that when someone defaults on a debt, there is a depositor who has lost their money. However, in fact this money is created out of nothing at the moment when lending takes place. Andrew Ross, an American sociologist, suggests that while debates about debt usually focus on the debtor's duty to repay, we might also pay attention to whether the right of lenders to claim income from debts should be binding, given that this money is only created upon lending and did not exist in their deposits beforehand. Andrew Ross also says we should draw lessons from the successes of recent campaigns for a jubilee on international debts. He writes that the argument for taking relief rested on evidence that the debts were either illegitimate or that the creditors had already been adequately repaid. Are there any grounds on which we might say the same for certain household debts? This year alone, I have seen two reports that have crystallised the problem regarding how the realities of one's personal financial life push very hard against what debt advice can do. The first report is by researchers at the Institute of Employment Research at the University of Warwick on the impact of debt advice on low-income people. They found that the provision of the very best financial education and debt advice and the most considerate of creditors did not offer sufficient solutions for some low-income people. While they noted that the provision of debt advice is important, they also pointed out that the policymakers should pay more attention to upstream measures that prevent chronic debt problems arising in the first place. These relate especially to low wages, social security and health. I think the point here is very simple. Even with the best advice in the world, other parts of an individual's life pushes back so much, it reduces the positive impact felt by those receiving advice. The second report I saw was Step Change's 2016 mid-year book. In it, they find that the number of their clients that finish debt advice with negative budgets is increasing. Debt advice is becoming the equivalent of running to standstill. For me, this begs a fundamental question. What do advice services tell people who have already cut back on everything? This isn't just for step change to think about, but all advice agencies, my own included at Toynbee Hall. How should advice services change when the clients are finishing with negative budgets? What more can we tell people who are only spending on absolute essentials and or debt repayments? I don't think anyone has all the answers yet, but it's quite clear that the advice sector needs to come together to discuss how to approach these difficult questions in a unified way taking in positions to advocate in the future, such as creditor grace periods for people really struggling in debt, to other more proactive measures that may, to start with at least, look very radical. If you'd like to comment on this podcast or contact either of the presenters, details can be found on our website at www.camthropod.org.